Are you looking to learn more about investing in the central Indiana real estate market? You've come to the right place. Welcome to the Indie Real Estate Investing Podcast with TNH Realty, where we discuss all things related to investing in the central Indiana real estate market. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indie Real Estate Investing Podcast with TNH Realty. I'm your host, Jeremy Tallman with TNH Realty. We're a residential property management company that services the central Indiana market. Our topic today is HOA rental restrictions. And our guest is someone who's had experience on both sides of this topic. And that's attorney Matthew Griffith with Griffith Exidius Law Group here in Indianapolis. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Matt, you've been a big part of our industry for a long time now. Um, but for those I'm people, old. yeah, <laughs> I relate. But for those people out there who uh, may not know you, can you provide some just quick background of, of uh, how you got your start and what you do today? I've been a real estate and business lawyer for 30 years. I uh, started practicing in 1992, and I practiced in Richmond, Indiana for a while. Actually, I worked for some judges right out of law school while I was studying for the bar exam. And then I joined um, a small firm, actually, just one lawyer. It was kind of funny. It was a gentleman named Phil Thrasher, who was the first legal affairs chairman for a group called the Indianapolis Landlords Association. Yeah. And our firm was Thrasher and Associates. And I was the only associate. So I was all of them. It was all of the associates. <clears throat> and then we, we added some more people and started a firm in 1994, like January 94. I became a partner and um, took off. And then 2010, I left that firm and started my own practice, a separate firm. Yeah. But um, Phil Thrasher turned the Indianapolis Landlords Association over to me in probably like 96, 95, 96. And I was legal affair chair, a chairman for that group for a long time. And then I helped reorganize the group into what is now CIREA, Central Indiana Real Estate Investors Association. They came, uh, they, they had a change in leadership and um, wasn't real thrilled with some of the stuff being taught from the podium. I think it's easier to do the right thing and sleep well at night <laughs> rather than cut corners and do things that are unethical and illegal. And I, I didn't like what was coming out of the podium. So I left the group and started another group and Steve Richards joined me and I've been around for a long time. I've written, I, I've spoken at uh, national RIAs and regional RIAs and other state RIAs. I've been around a while. I've done a lot of real estate investing. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you know, I, Scott, my business partner, and I, we started in this industry in 2000 is when we bought our first rental property and started buying a bunch more in that, that time frame. And at the time we, we went, we became a part of ILA. Right. So I, I remember that. And I think as I think back, we talked about this briefly last week, you and I probably met at one of those meetings. And as we were building our business, we're like, hey, we, we need an attorney um, because, you know, we we go by the at that point, you went and bought a book with a lease in it and, you know, it was perforated and you made photocopies of it. And <laughs> uh, right. And uh, we're like, we probably need as we started getting more and more properties, it's like we probably need to get an attorney and create a lease. And the funny thing about you and, and us is I actually went to your office and I think we had, we had a meeting you and I did. And, and what happened, I believe, was that you got called out to court or something, but they're like, Hey, we have this other guy um, and he can help you. And that's, and he became our attorney. Stephen Earnhardt became our attorney at that yeah. point. Steve's we a good lawyer. Yeah, we, we just missed each other. I guess it would have been totally different. But um, so anyway, you know, Matt, we talked last, or I sent you some information. One of the things we like to talk about on our podcast before we get into the, um, the rental restrictions is some numbers. And you seem to be very in tune with numbers and, and just trends about real estate. And so I sent you a couple of things to look at and one to kind of get your take on it. I'll start with some numbers that we get every month from my board. We're my board members and they send out numbers on the housing market. And it's been like this crazy, you know, upward swing in the housing market for the last few years. And, and so the numbers that came out early this month of June of 2022 was that the median sales price for central Indiana 
is now $300,000. It's a new record for us. And accompanied with that from June of 2021 to June of 2022, our median sales price increased by 19.8%. So essentially 20% year over year. So those are impressive numbers by themselves. But the two that I wanted to kind of maybe dig into a little bit, maybe have some thoughts on or that listings did increase from June of 2021 to June of 22 by 10.8%. So nearly 11%, we increased number of listings. But accompanied with that is that sales actually decreased by 6.3%. What do you make of those numbers? I mean, so we got these, you know, this a new record of sale price, $300,000 medium sale price Central Indiana. But yet it does appear that sales are slowing. So just give me your take on that if you have one. Okay, so... I'm a big believer in uh, economics, basic principles of microeconomics. First rule of economics, right? Greed works. People are motivated by money. Mm-hmm. But supply and demand, you, uh, you know, Adam, was that Adam Smith, The Invisible Hand, wrote that book. And it's true. You cannot deny supply and demand. So what has happened is we, we have an undersupply. A lot of people are worried because 2008 is still close enough in our rearview mirror that people worry about that crash. That crash was the result of government forcing the market into a situation where there were too many buyers. And what happened was government subsidized loans to the point where anybody could go get a loan. And so we had too many buyers. And we have a situation today where we have not too many buyers, but too few houses. So I've seen estimates where we're two and a half to three and a half million short of inventory, which is crazy. And, and you can explain if you look at building permits and just construction starts over say the last 10 to 15 years, we're way behind. We got 331 million people in this country. So The demand for housing has steadily gone up, but the supply of housing has not kept pace. So we just have, we have a housing shortage right now. Okay. So how does that explain current trends? Well, it doesn't. So you have to divorce long-term economic trends, supply and demand and that that type, those types of um, hate to say macro factors because it's really microeconomic concepts from immediate changes in, in the market. So the, the price increases, that, that is a, that's a result of two things, inflation, because everything costs more right now. I mean, um, lumber prices are down. I mean, they're, they're about 600 a thou for a board foot right now, down from their high of like 1500 a thou. Um, so lumber prices have come down, but not metal, not rubber, not anything petroleum. So mm-hmm. it costs more. Go buy a furnace for an average house today, and you're going to pay two to $4,000 more. So it just costs more to build a house today or to rehab a house today. That puts upward pressure. And the immediate results of market shifts, I think it's just an emotional reaction to interest rate changes. You and I have talked before about interest rates. I remember when I was probably a kid or preteen, my dad had an 8% mortgage on a house. That was like pot of gold in the backyard. He would get phone calls at least three or four times a week from banks. This is back when you could call people and bug them at home on a landline. (laughs) And he would get calls from banks and lenders two or three times at least, at least a week, probably almost every day saying, Hey, we can cash out. We can, how would you like to have, you know, $40,000 of cash? We can get you a new loan. And my dad obviously would ask, okay, what would my interest rate be would be? And he said, a low 14 and a half percent. Right. And if you told somebody a buyer today, they were going to pay 14 and a half percent, their head would split open. They just couldn't believe it. They would fall down. Everything's relative. And, you know, think about Stock market goes up, stock market goes down. It's not because the companies that are in this that comprise the stock offerings on the market are doing poorly. It's just that they haven't met expectations. Right. So that you thought, well, this company is going to 
make an extra $40 million this year and they only make 20. <laughs> they made $20 million more this year than they did last year. And the stock price goes down. Right. So that's almost an emotional reaction to the worth of that company. The worth of that company went up by $20 million, but the stock value went down. That's sort of what happens with interest rates. People freak out. And there's a lot of advertisements on the radio and television and print. Oh my God, interest rates are going up. You better hurry up and get your house. Yeah. And the market kind of feeds the hysteria. Right. I think, I think the first interest rate, my parent, my parents' house, the first house they ever bought, they bought it on contract, I believe it was 18%. So that's yeah. probably like 1980 range. Yeah. That's, that. That was common back then. Yeah, yeah. So for us to go to five and something, you know, I think Scott and I, our first mortgage was around eight, eight, eight and a half percent back in 2000. So yeah, right. You know, money's been so cheap for so long. I think you're right. There's been an initial reaction to the market that all of a sudden interest rates have essentially, you know, doubled, but still they doubled from a very small number. And so there's been a shock to it. So I think that's why maybe sales have decreased. There's no doubt. There's yeah. no doubt. There's no doubt that the interest rate increase has freaked people out. And the other, the other thing, um, market watchers will look at the number of, of new loans and they're freaking out because the rate of new mortgages dropped. Well, everybody and their brother refied over the past two years. Right. At some point, people were going to stop refining. When did they stop refining? When the rate goes up a little. Right. Because why would you refi and pay an extra half a point or a point on your mortgage, unless you, unless you just have to suck the cash out. Yeah. There's no reason to refi. So of course, when rates go up, there's going to be a market reaction. That's only natural. And I think it's just a lot of hype and a lot of hysteria. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it's going to be interesting to see how the rest of the year goes and the overall market, but let's, let's move on a little bit or to the next topic. And that's something that IBJ came out with a little bit ago. There's an article they wrote that, Indicated for the first time in decades, Indianapolis actually lost some population. It was it was nominal. It was 5,600 residents between July 2020 and July 2021, you know, which was in the height of the pandemic and, and things like that. So I keep on reading these words in the in the article that it's troubling, it's concerning, because we have had a nice growth period in the last decade up until now. Any thoughts on that? Any does that concern you at all? population? Yeah. And I don't want to get too political, but I, I think that the standard of living, the quality of life in Marion County, Indiana has dropped over the past several years. So I was born and raised in Indianapolis and I've lived other places, but for the most part, Indianapolis has been home and Marion County is just not as, it's not as nice a place to live as it was um, say 10 years ago. The surrounding counties, what we call the donut counties, the ones mm -hmm. surrounding Marion County, are many of them are growing really, really rapidly. I mean, have you looked at Avon or Plainfield or Brownsburg or Zionsville? It's amazing how much growth. So we've seen that kind of um, um, flight. I mean, back back in the 70s, it was called white flight. Mm -hmm. And it was a it was a lot of um, white families moved out of Marion County, Indiana, to where they primarily primarily went to Johnson County and and Hamilton County, and so the demographics of Marion County changed quite a bit. And I think you're seeing not so much a drop in population in Marion County. I mean, it, it, statistics say it's dropped a little bit, but mostly what you're seeing is growth in the surrounding counties because there's so much excitement and everything's new. Everybody wants to go to where it's new and new restaurants and new parks and new this and new that. There's just a lot of excitement in some of their surrounding counties. I think that's drawing a lot of attention away from Marion County and Marion County's just, it's not as clean. It's not as pretty. There's the riots downtown shut down and the, and COVID shut down town especially for months mm -hmm. businesses had board boarded up windows and it's just and then the construction they decided to rebuild every road at the same time you can't get from one side of downtown to the other right. then you they 
they made they made downtown Indianapolis less welcoming. You can't park on the street anymore. They uh, Meridian Street is down to essentially one lane north, one lane south because of the bus line. They've not made it user friendly. They've actually discouraged people. Then you add on top of that, COVID shut down uh, many of our uh, tourism industry. That was a big hit. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that was really, really rough because Indianapolis had become a really um, hot spot for conventions and shows and so forth. So I think it's a it's a perfect storm of bad government leadership, really silly urban planning. I mean, really silly urban planning. And then the attractiveness of surrounding counties. I think it's really hurt Marion County. Yeah. I live in Marion County. I live near downtown. It, the, you know, it was tough when COVID hit and the riots hit. It was a, it was a, it wasn't a good place to be. It wasn't a fun nope. place to be. Um, it's not back. Right. I mean, I feel like it's come. I mean, Bottle Works has been great. Bottle Works is if you if you've been to Bottle Works anywhere around there, there is a ton of buzz down there. I mean, it's a fun place to be. Um, So we'll just see how it works out. I think a lot of those numbers were, you know, I think every urban center in the country has seen a drop in population a little bit. Um, Well, Well, and crime is a big problem. And so if you talk to so I'm con- I'm connected to a lot of people that are campaigning for November. I have a bunch of connections to people. So I, I talked, I talked to people that are running for offices and the, the crime situation in center township really is out of control. That's really hurting Indianapolis. And, you know, you talk to the average beat cop and he'll tell you, or she'll tell you, it, unless somebody has stolen more than $5,000, the police will not arrest the guy. Why not? Because our prosecutor's office won't prosecute those smaller crimes. Mm. And so, you know, that trend that we see nationally in big cities where crime is not being taken seriously, it had, it's hit Indianapolis. And it's a it's going to be a big part of the November election because crime is a big, big problem. Yeah, I mean. I guess I don't experience it on like a day-to-day level, but I do know I do know the statistics show that. Um, I'm still very bullish on downtown um, from my where I sit, but um, I think there's a lot of good things happening. And the infrastructure, though, has been a, <laughs> you know, you're right. They've worked on, decided to work on basically every road at the same time. And the interstate exchanges now are, are difficult. We have people that live on the south side. It's hard to get to our office because we're in the Broad Ripple, Meridian, Kessler area. So yep. the 65 interchange not being there has been problematic, but hopefully, There's, hopefully that goes away soon. I wish I had been in the construction cone industry about you know right. four years right. ago because right. they sold they've sold a lot of construction cones. <laughs> yeah, they really have. Okay, well enough of the uh, I guess statistics and things like that. Let's get into the topic today, and that is HOAs and their rental restrictions. You know, Matt, we have a lot of clients and we have a lot of clients that own in neighborhoods that are governed by HOAs. And we're getting more and more feedback from our clients that they're getting these letters in the mail that says there's a rental cap coming in your neighborhood. And it could be 15%, 10%, to, you know, that only 15% of homes can be rentals or 10%, whatever it might be. But kind of give us a, a brief definition from where you said of what what HOAs are doing today in terms of rental restrictions and how they may affect landlords. I think they're getting more aggressive. HOAs are in restricting um, non-owner occupancy. And, and you, you got to ask yourself why um, that they have nothing else to do. Like, you know, usually HOAs will debate for a couple of days, like what kind of pool skimmer do we put on the swimming pool? Right. You know, I mean, kind of, crazy trivial things that's par for the course for HOAs but I actually was at an HOA meeting because I my old law firm we represented HOAs and I'd have to go to the annual meetings and I remember one meeting this uh, HOA they they must have debated for 20 minutes whether you cut the grass horizontally or vertically or do we alternate or do we do it on an angle? Right. <laughs> like I couldn't believe it. it was like they were paying me to sit there and listen to this conversation. But what what's happened nationally, if you want to understand why HOAs are reacting is Wall Street decided to become landlords. Mm-hmm. And 
these investment firms, large companies have invested billions with a B in single family homes. Most of them are starter homes or small second, uh, second purchase type home, right? So you're talking about three and four bedroom homes, two, two and a half, uh, three baths, small ranches, but mostly small uh, two-story buildings. Guess where those are? Those are where HOAs are. And they, they have sucked up the, indus- the uh, inventory to the point where first-time home buyers and second-time home buyers have had a hard time. They're competing with a lot of big companies. The inventory is pulled off the market before the home buyer can even get to it. Right. And so those there's so much money. They're cash buyers, no inspections. You know, they, they just go in there, no financing contingency. Well, the young couple with their first kid, they can't compete against those buyers. So so much of that has so much of that housing has been taken off the market. Okay. Well, is Wall Street gonna live in all those houses? Well, of course not. They're buying them as inventory to put them in rental programs. So the number of homes and in those PUDs, uh, you know, neighborhoods with with HOAs has increased pretty significantly. They're just more tenants living in those homes. And the HOAs, you know, typically when someone buys their own home, they personalize it and they tend to take care of it better. Um, Tenants don't care about your house landlord as much as you do. And so the houses are neglected. The grass gets taller. There's more weeds in the flower beds. There's toys all over the front yard. There's just, you know, beer cans and all, just all the stuff that you don't want to see in your neighbor's yard. It's in your neighbor's yard. And that's because your neighbor is some large corporation that's owned by just a bunch of investors that have no idea that they bought your house and they stuck a tenant in there. And the HOAs have reacted by putting restrictions on. Right. That's what's happening. Yeah. So I want to challenge that just a minute because I look, try to find some data that would back up what you just said, that tenants don't care as much about homes as an owner occupant would. I think intuitively we may know that, right? Because if you own a home, it's like, well, I have an, an asset here and I want to make sure it looks good. I, I take pride in it, things like that. I can tell you just maybe it's more anecdotally that we have tenants that take great care of properties, that their properties look great. Their grass is green, even in this type of environment, which is really hard to have green grass here in Indianapolis, <laughs> you know, and during, during this drought we're having. But are there, and I'm just asking the question because I don't know the answer because I didn't try to find it. And maybe there's really no good data out there that would support either argument. But is it a fact that generally speaking, tenants don't take as good care of properties as an owner occupant? Well, let me put it this way. I've evicted thousands and thousands of tenants over the past 30 years. Right. And that's my anecdotal evidence that it's i have been shocked at how tenants have treated my clients properties right um just amazing disregard for someone else's property i mean it's it's just amazing to me what tenants will do and um many 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 tenants have an attitude they don't appreciate what the landlord has done the risk the landlord takes a lot of tenants see the landlord tenant relationship as, as um, adversarial. Right. And um, yeah, my, my evidence is anecdotal, but I got 30 years of evictions right. that, that tell me that by and large tenants do not respect an investor's investment in that property and so forth. And a lot of tenants or a lot of landlords do not foster the right landlord tenant relationship. They, you know, the basis of every good relationship is good communication. And it's, it's phenomenal how landlords just don't talk to their tenants and will communicate with them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I trust me. Um, <laughs> I've seen a lot of homes that were left in very poor shape over the you know 20 years we've been doing this actually 22. 
At the same time, though, I'll say this. We used to be, until it became almost impossible, we used to be big sheriff sale buyers. We bought sheriff sales a lot. And I saw a lot of homeowners do the same thing. Now, maybe it was they just gave up, right? Because, they gave up. You know, they were just like, we, we we can't afford this mortgage. I can't afford to fix the plumbing. I can't afford to fix the roof, whatever it is. So the house just naturally started deteriorating. And they were just at that some point looking for shelter, well, you know, until they and, were just forced to leave. And And get this. So a lot of those houses that you saw go through foreclosure, those were tenants who the government turned into buyers. They yeah. turned them into homeowners because they gave them no money down loans, uh, no doc loans, which is just amazing. It's like, let's all put on blindfolds and pretend that this borrower has more income than they really have. So a lot of the people that you're talking about that went through foreclosure, they never should have been approved for a loan in the first place. Those no. were tenants. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, we, you know, we're going to have a podcast coming up on share of sales because we have some good stories about it. But you know, there were back in 2010, you know, the sheriff's sale today, I think it was, I think it, the sheriff's sale was, was Monday this month. I think there were 60 homes on it. Back in 2010, we'd go to sales and there were over a thousand. And, you know, because I, we'd yeah. go to closings and lenders would be bragging about they approved someone at a 450 credit score. I mean, you couldn't get, you couldn't rent from us with 450, not even close to that right now. Yeah. So it's, there were just a lot of bad loans. Uh, yeah. And that, and that's what happened in 08. Right. That, yeah. That's why we that's why we had a crash in 08 is because we had tenants who had been given hundreds of thousands of dollars to go buy a house. It's right. crazy. Yeah. Really and they sh- yeah. yeah. And and so uh, those people never should have been homeowners. Right. So the rent, you, you know, Wall Street has come in. There's no question. They've converted, you know, billions of dollars into single from bonds to single families. Yep. Tell us. What, what are the most common restrictions that you see? Like, I know you, you work with some HOAs, you work with a lot of investors. Like, wh- what are the common restrictions that you see that, that landlords may face out there? Well, on the, on the rental side, they typically restrict the number of rental units as a percentage. And in, con- in a condominium situation, that impacts the ability of the actual homeowners to get loans, to get mortgage loans. Because if there's two higher too high of a percentage. And that number has fluctuated over the years. But if there are too many rental properties in a condominium or townhouse type structure governed by the, used to be called the horizontal property regime law, but now it's called the condominium law that changed 10, 15 years ago. But you just can't get a loan if there are too many renters in a condo. You just can't. And so condos have restricted the number of renters for a long, long time. But now you're seeing it in the PUD, the the typical single family uh, planned urban development type neighborhood, right? The one with cul-de-sacs and the swimming pool and that type of thing. So, yeah, you're seeing restrictions there. And that's, again, a reflection of Wall Street coming in and just buying up too much inventory and turning all those houses into rentals. Right. So rental restrictions have been around for a long time. I, I do remember one that we had that probably the most difficult to navigate. It's been quite a while ago, though. I, I would guess 10 to 12 years ago, where we picked up a property, I believe it was already occupied. And we started managing it. And our client reached out to us and said, hey, I got a letter from the HOA. Turns out that before I bought this property, they had just changed the covenants. And I, and this, this investor lived in California. And she said, I'm required to live in that property for two years before I can rent it out. Yep. So I've essentially, my, my lease is no good and I have to make this tenant leave. Well, that becomes problematic because there's a lease in place. So very long story short, I think both sides lawyered up. The HOA was pushing it hard. They weren't going to back down. My client didn't want to back down, but ultimately what happened to, had to happen is we had to stop charging rent. And then the tenant graciously vacated a couple of weeks later, <laughs> or a couple, I'm sorry, a couple of months later. So there was some this pain that, they, that the landlord felt. But so let me ask you this. When, if you're an investor out there and, and you like those suburbs, which frankly, a lot of our clients love those suburbs, great schools, you know, you get typically tenants that stay more than a year, um, families, pride of, you know, pride of tenantship, we'll call it, typically take care of the property. What do you advise clients that are going into to these neighborhoods to to be mindful of? What due diligence to 
investors need to do to make sure that they're not going to get burned? Once a week, I get an email or phone call from a client or prospective client. And they say, hey, I got a problem with this guy. And I say, oh, okay. Um, well, what's your contract today? Hello? You still there, sir? Right. <laughs> um, it's amazing. And saying, oh, I don't know. I haven't looked at it. I said, or, um, hey, I got a problem with my business partner. And I said, oh, okay. Well, what's your operating agreement or your partnership agreement say? It's like, let's uh, check the sock drawer first. So meaning, why don't we pull out the contract and see what the contract says? And what a lot of people don't understand is that neighborhood covenants, um, they have this uh, split personality. They're partly real estate based. It's, it constitutes part of real estate and interest in real estate, but it also is a, is a contract. So it falls in two categories and the contract part of it is just overlooked. So it's, it's really, really important if you're going to buy any property, especially a property, a condo for sure, but even a house in a PUD, you really should as part of the due diligence period. That means before you get to closing, right. you should, there should be an obligation in the purchase agreement. This starts with the purchase agreement. The purchase agreement requires the seller to provide basic documents, and those include the HOA documents. And you got to read them and they're not fun to read, but you have to understand that if you're going to buy a house in a neighborhood where there are covenants, you are agreeing to that contract, the covenants. And if you don't read the contract, how do you know what's in the contract? When, when I was in law school, first day of contract class, my professor said, okay, everybody stand up. So we all stood up. She says, okay, if you've ever signed a, entered into a contract without reading it first, sit down. And maybe 10 people sat down, right? Nobody in first, first semester law school wanted to admit to their contracts professor that they had entered right. into a contract without reading it. But 10 brave souls sat down. She said, oh, really? And then she went through a series of contracts like, well, how many of you have gotten an oil change? And you didn't read the back of the form you signed authorizing the oil change. And then, you know, about 50 people sat down. So she went through a series of questions like that. And then there were a couple stubborn people who, you know, didn't, we call them gunners and they refused to acknowledge that they'd ever entered into a contract. But the reality is we all have, right? Shame on us. Right. You got to read the contract or, or at a minimum, turn it over. I hate to say turn it over to a lawyer to read the covenants before you buy a house but shame on you if you don't if you don't read that contract you don't know what you're what you're getting into right and if your business model is to rent that property and you don't read the contract that might restrict your ability to to rent that property that's like um you know opening a donut shop and not buying sugar or maybe worse that's like buying a donut shop but it doesn't have a front door (laughs) for the customers to walk through. Right. How how are you going to sell donuts if you can't even get into the place? Do you, does it make sense? You know, because from, from where, from our brokerage standpoint, it's, it's almost impossible to buy a home in the suburbs today. Like, you know, because you just mentioned, I mean, we're, we're competing against owner occupants. We're competing against big corporations that are writing, you know, appraisal gap cover, you know, it, well, they're not even getting financing, so it doesn't matter, but it's just hard oh, for us cash. to compete. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard for, for our brokerage and our, our investors to compete in the suburbs, but would you, cause I think I've seen this before is to have the HOA provide a letter saying you have permission to rent this property. Will HOAs do that? Cause I, I know I think I've seen it, but I don't know if it's something that could be considered like to put into a, an investor's practices for having done before they close. I've seen emails right. where um, brokers have asked the HOA to confirm that they'll, they'll usually ask for confirmation about the dues. Like, are there any unpaid dues on the property? And that's, you know, that's a typical process. We've had that for a long time because in theory, unpaid dues constitute a lien against the property. So if you buy a property and the and your seller did not pay the dues, you inherited those dues. Right. Now many right. HOAs won't enforce unpaid dues on the buyer, but they could. Right. They could, because right. it is a lien. 
right. um, or could be a lien on the property. I, but I have seen emails where the HOA will confirm, yes, we have no rental restrictions. Okay. I have seen that. Right. I've not seen it in a formal letter, but I've seen it just in an informal email. It says, uh, yeah, the seller owes $57.16, whatever, you know, for its interest on dues he didn't pay last quarter. And no, we don't have any rental restrictions. Or yes, we do. And here's the waiting list. Or I've seen that. I've seen the right. waiting list. Right. Yeah. So it's it's one thing to go into it, into a neighborhood where there, there aren't rental restrictions. But then three or four years happen, you've rented it, you know, three or four years. And this, I think, is a more common scenario that we're, our clients are facing now. You get that letter that yep. says, we're instituting a rental cap and it's 10% and we're going to vote on that, you know, and here's your proxy or whatever, you know, you can vote if you want. What, I guess, what, what's, what's the plan at that point? Like if you, if you get okay. that letter, like what, what's, what's the game plan? Because a lot of our clients are getting those and they're like, it, it naturally freaks them out. Like, oh my God, you know, they're going to what do I have? What do I do here? So what do you recommend as an attorney there? Okay. So let me answer the question this way. Let's say that you um, hire somebody to um, paint the outside of your house and they agree that they're going to charge you $8,500 labor and materials, and they're going to paint the outside of your house. And then halfway through the job, they come to you and they said, boy, it was really, really hot today. I think I'm going to charge you 9,500 because it, man, it's hot. Well, I didn't realize it was going to be this hot when I painted the outside of your house. I mean, it's really hot. So I'm going to have to charge you an extra thousand dollars. Well, that's a unilateral change of contract. And unless the contract allows for that kind of adjustment unilaterally, the painter can't just change the contract on you. Well, guess what? HOA is in the same situation. When you get that letter that says, we're going to put this rental cap in place. That is another way of saying, hey, I'm going to unilaterally change the contract on you. Well, you can't do that retroactively. Right. The HOA can't do that retroactively. Right. So if you already have a tenant in place, you, you are essentially grandfathered in. And there, there sometimes is a battle, depending on how the covenants are written, as to whether um, once that lease expires, whether the landlord can rent again or they're grandfathered in as, as a rental. So you have that battle depending on how the covenants are written, but generally speaking, you're grandfathered. Okay. So maybe I misunderstood or didn't hear you right. But so if I have a property and this say the rental cap is 10% and the neighborhood says we're at 12, they do a census and we're at 12% and they, then they pass it because, you know, there, there's gotta be some sort of amendment to those, you know, new covenants that come out saying we now have a rental cap and that's right. You know, it's your contract, right? At least 50 to 75% of homeowners, I guess it depends on the, the, how they structure it has to agree to that change. But the grandfathering, I want to talk about a minute because if it's a, if you're already over cap and then your tenant moves out, what are you seeing there? Or is it like you can't rent because we're at, we're a cap or we've already it deemed you inside it? I mean, what, it, what do you? Yeah, it depends on how the covenants are written or the amendment, how the cap is written. So sometimes it is written such that the property is grandfathered in. Okay. Sometimes I've seen HOAs try to say, no, no, this tenant is grandfathered in. That's unusual. Most of the time it's the property is grandfathered in. Okay, so it's 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 grandfathered in until it may be sold to an owner occupant, then it kind of gets resets itself at that point. Yes, yes. Okay, and the okay. devil's in the details. What's your contract say? Okay, so yeah, I think that's a really good piece of advice because we're even getting um, some concerns from owners, homeowners on or investors rather on renewals. It's like, I don't know if I can renew my lease. And I'm like, well, I think you probably can. But I think it's, again, goes back to the, what is the yeah. contract? Say? What, what does your, what does your contract say? Right. And you got to read your contract, just like the painting scenario. So you pull out your contract and you say, well, here's in paragraph 18, it says the painter can propose a change order, or I can propose a change order, but it says we both have to agree 
I'm looking at my fictional contract in my hand. You probably can't see that. Um, uh, uh, but paragraph 18 says that we both have to agree to any change in the contract. Hmm. Well, that's good to know. Let me see what my covenants say. So you whip out your covenants and you turn to page 38 because they're always long. Right. right? And, and you got you got to figure out which contract says it's a contract. And obviously it's in everyone, it's in the investor's interest to vote. You know, if they, if they do, they're going to call a vote if they have to change and create an institute of cap to make sure they're present and, uh, I mean, not present, but at least so, they vote by proxy and things like that. So when, so I, I'm kind of a, a libertarian at heart, not in the political party sense, right? Because nobody votes for libertarians. Um, uh, you know, they always, <laughs> they're a distance fourth in the three three party race every year but um the i i do believe in limited government and the ability to enter into my own contracts as long as i'm not hurting somebody right i mean that's where you cross the line where you where you do bad stuff and you hurt people if you hurt people i don't think that's permitted right but but i generally think we ought to be free to do what we want to do covenants are a restriction on that but it's voluntary. Like you cannot buy that house in that neighborhood because you don't like those restrictions. You can do you you know go to another neighborhood, look at the covenants. But that's not what people do in the real world. Word world. So investors find a house and they said, "Oh, this would be a great rental property," and they don't take the next step to say, "Well, what what's the contract I'm entering into with my neighbors and the HOA?" Uh, if I buy that property and, and if you read that, that contract and you're unhappy, or if it doesn't meet your business plan needs, don't buy that property. But investors are just not um, taking that extra step to figure out what it is they're actually buying. Those covenants are part of it. And it, it really is a double-edged sword. So on the one hand, it restricts your freedom, but on the other hand, it maintains your value your property value. I own, I own pro, uh, property in, in Florida. Mm-hmm. I have a um, townhouse uh, on 30A in the Panhandle. And um, I have a neighborhood Nazi. She's the property manager. I get an email from her once a week. If there's a trash can that's, I got fined $10 this year. My property manager's paying the fee because they didn't pull the trash can in within the three hour time limit. It's amazing how yeah. I, I'm telling you, I get an email once a week. Her name is Carol. Good old Carol. Carol says, Someone left a flip flop by the swimming pool. And if it's not picked up by the owner, you know, in the next three hours, we're going to discard it. It's a, it, she's just, crazy like they, they just police the neighborhood and on the one hand it annoys it annoys me right. but on the other hand i say wow that's why that property has appreciated that and other market factors that a property is appreciated nine hundred thousand dollars in four years four and a half years yeah and it's because the quality of the housing has been maintained you drive through that neighborhood and it looks just like it did four years ago Right. And it's because of the policing by the HOA. So it's yeah. a double-edged sword. I, I really like that I've, I've more than doubled my money. I've tripled my money on that one property, which is awesome. But I also had to endure the annoying emails from Carol right. about, about how, right? Yeah, it's a pretty good trade-off. Relationship. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I, I think that sounds like a pretty good trade-off from a, from a, from a financial standpoint. But <laughs> okay. So I, I think it's the takeaway there is that, you know, you, you got to read your covenants restrictions. You got to yep. know if your property is grandfathered in. I think that's yep. a really key point. Um, and not just your tenant, because if your tenants just grandfathered in, then you may have issues when that tenant moves out that you may need to dispose of the property. So I think that's really good stuff to, to look at and or, it's really up to the investor the, to dig into it. To, to find there's out. another option, right? So I've, I've done this before and, and this is not a perfect solution, but so 
in Indiana since 1974, I think it was 74, there was a case called Skinsel v. Marshall. And that case was the first time in Indiana where the Indiana court said a land contract is to be treated like a note mortgage. And so effectively, a land contract is a transfer of everything but legal title. So all title, what we call equitable title, the ability to use the property, the ability to hang up a picture in the living room, the ability to have your friends over for a barbecue, all of that, every, all use of the property is transferred over to the land contract buyer, except legal title. So legal title remains with the seller. And that, that is akin to a mortgage that a bank has. So you put the land contract, the, the land contract roughly is like a note mortgage that the bank holds. Okay. So under Skinsel v. Marshall, that's a sale. That's a sale. So if you got, if the HOA knocks on your door and says, Hey, we, you know, we've had a rental restriction in place for the past three years and you bought your place two years ago after the restriction and you're over the cap, you got a, we, and we just learned yesterday that you have a tenant. So you're in violation of the covenants. We need you to do something about this. One thing you could do, it's not a great solution, not a perfect solution, rather than kick the tenant out and deal with, you know, have to put the property on the market and all that, is to convert that, that lease if, if the tenant wants to buy the house, turn it into a land contract. I've actually done that for clients where we knew the tenant had no intentions of buying the place. Right. Now, you don't want it recorded. You want to put specific language in that says they shall not record. And you right. got to deal with, it, it's not awesome because then you got to deal with foreclosure. And mm -hmm. if the tenant stops, if the tenant buyer stops paying you, and files bankruptcy, they're treated differently in bankruptcy right. court than under a lease. There's a, there are definitely drawbacks. And there's actually an article, I think there's an ebook. There's an ebook on my website about lease options and land contracts. I, I've had I've had the worst land contract cases in Indiana history. Um, I had a case, it's, it's, there's an, a reported appellate decision, Carter, Carter v. Dempsey. Um, the Carters, I met them at um, Indianapolis Landlords Association. Okay. They were clients, and this is a reported decision, so I'm not giving any secrets out. Um, I sued a, a lawyer who was buying their property on land contract, and he drugged that thing out for two years. It took two years to get the property back. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That, was night, that was a night, that was a perfect nightmare scenario so i'm in a sense i'm not a big fan i just told a client yesterday that we were not going to sell one of his properties on land contract because there are so many downsides to land contracts but if you're in a pinch right. that might be a solution to get out of the renter's cap yeah it could be a release valve there i i could be I see that yeah if you want to keep it otherwise you negotiate a deal with the tenant you get the tenant out and then you put the property on the market and in this market you're going to sell it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's the one nice thing about this market is that, you know, <laughs> if you have to sell something, it's not a it's not a bad place to be in the market, especially if you no. bought it, you know, you know, even a year ago, you know, you're probably going to be okay, but it's still painful because maybe you want to keep that for your child's education. You know, you sell it 10 years when your child's ready to go to college and, well, you know, and that sort of thing. Yeah, if you have any gain, you're either paying taxes or you got to do a 1031 or something. Right. That's right. Yeah. So let's say that I'm on the outside looking in and I bought a property and I screwed up and I <laughs> didn't read my covenants and restrictions and my property manager puts the home on the market for rent. And then they get a call from the HOA saying, you can't rent in this neighborhood. We're over the cap. Is it worth a fight? I mean, is it, is there any, besides, you know, trying to sell it, just going and selling it again? Is there, just looking for any recourse at all, or is it just an uphill battle at that point? Uh, what's the contract say? <laughs> it says it can't right. rent. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean it, it, it depends on the, the answer to that question is, are you right or are you wrong? Right. And if you're wrong, then you got to come up with plan B, which is, negotiate a settlement with the HOA. Fine. Let me let this tenant finish. There are only three more months on the lease. Let's let the tenant, let the tenant leave peacefully. And then, you know, I'll do something 
else or convert to a lease option or i'm sorry convert to a land contract or put the property on the market right yeah so yeah i think i think that's right it's it's not a good place to be in and again i think it just comes down to to doing your homework to make sure that you're um you're in compliance and you can rent it and and that hopefully that your HOA will, if they do adopt a cap, would adopt the property and, and not the tenant. So you can continue to rent it for as long as you, as long as you choose. So, well, Hey Matt, this has been great. I appreciate you jumping on. I just a, a couple more minutes here. I, I just don't know what, since I got you on here, you're an attorney, but 30 years experience. What else are you seeing out there that, you know, landlords are trends in law or legislation or whatever that might that you're seeing out there being in court a lot and working with a lot of clients and that, that people may need to, to know about or, or find helpful here. Yeah. So there seems to be a surge of discrimination cases right now. Not, I'm not sure why, but there's a surge of claims. Most of them are just complete nonsense. So I have one I'm litigating right now where we evicted this guy in small claims court and he filed a counterclaim in the small claims court. This guy sublet the property. It's a single family house. He turns it into a triplex, mm-hmm. right? And then he, um, the te- one, one or more of his subtenants aren't paying the rent. So he decides to turn off the water and the heat in January in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he builds a wall. The, the tenants keep turning the thermostat up. <laughs> And so he builds a wall and he isolates the furnace so they can't get to it. And he disconnects the gas and he disconnects the water supply to the house. So they call my guy and say, hey, right, I don't have any water. I don't have any heat. You own the property. So we file for an emergency eviction and the judge gives it to us. And in the hearing, this guy files counterclaim and says, oh, they're discriminating based upon my mental condition like what mental condition that is so common tenants will throw anything at a landlord as a counterclaim and discrimination is just an easy one it's an easy one right and you know there are a lot of people i think are crazy but i don't know if they have a medical diagnosis (laughs) i just think they're irrational uneducated ill-informed people that doesn't make them crazy i mean crazy in the sense of they have a, they have a mental or emotional condition that would sat, that that would satisfy the requirements of discrimination, right. right? I mean, there are a lot of people I think are crazy, but I don't think that they're, I don't think that by me treating them a certain way, I'm discriminating against them, um, not in the legal sense. So there just seems to be a lot of that. It's just really easy, and I think there's a heightened awareness of race right now, mm-hmm. and so. You, you see a lot of that. You see a lot of that. What's crazy is even my clients that are African-American, they're black landlords. They're even getting accused of, of racism by black tenants. And it's just, that just seems to be on everybody's mind right now. Just a heightened state of alertness for race. That's a, that's a problem. And here's the other one. In the past 10 years, we've had a lot of new rules about registering, giving notices to tenants. And, and I don't think landlords know all the rules. Um, I'm still amazed at how many landlords don't understand the 45 day rule, the security right. deposit rule. I mean, that's just incredible to me. They just, they don't understand those rules. So landlords need to be, especially first time landlords. I say first time landlords, but I got, I got clients that have been doing it for 10, 12 years, and they still don't know the basic rules of landlording. They don't know the laws. So, you know, if I went into um, glass making or some new industry, right, I would probably spend some time figuring out what the rules are before I went into that industry. If I didn't have experience in it, that's a, that's a huge mistake that investors make. They don't take the time to figure out what are the rules. What are the rules? What are my restrictions? What are my obligations? So they get into it. And then those are those translate into unexpected costs, right? So one way or another, if there's a restriction or an obligation placed upon you, that's going to cost you money. And that probably didn't fit your business model. 
So knowing the rules before you get into the game, I think are really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, you know, we see that too, where as a property manager, you know, we are under a lot of scrutiny to, you know, we, we just have to treat everyone the same and it goes from screening is a no brainer. I mean, you know, you, you have to have the same screening requirements and it's kind of scary. Like you mentioned, I've met landlords locally and they say, I always want to meet my people. I always want to shake their hand, look them in the eye, and I'll get a good feel if they're going to be a good tenant or not. And I'm like, boy, that is just a bad way to do it. Do it. You know, I, it's a I, horrible way. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if you did. This is what I've told for 30 years. I've told clients to do this. I, I tell them to have a objective rent criteria that's written on paper for every single door they have right. on a per door basis. Because, you know, I had a rental property years ago in Fountain Square, and I don't remember what the rent was there, six, seven hundred bucks a month. Mm-hmm. But I also had rental properties in Castleton, and I was thirteen, fourteen hundred dollars a month for mm-hmm. those. They were very, very different properties, very different properties. And I had a rent criteria. So I, I wanted to see so many, so many um, years on the job, no evictions. I had higher criteria for my for my nicer properties and lower criteria for my mm-hmm. not so nice properties. Right. Right. Okay. And I wanted a different class of tenant for my expensive properties. Right. And I had those in writing and I would email them to somebody just so there was a paper trail showing that I had those in place beforehand. Right. And then I followed them religiously. Right. Yeah. We, you know, I definitely have heard of that strategy. We don't, we have uniform screening requirements are on our website. We don't, you know, we don't hide from them. We enforce them, but I definitely have heard of rental requirements, which is perfectly legal to do. You just, and because yep. even it's probably more applicable maybe for, you know, a, a big multifamily owner that has, you know, a 400 unit building in Gary, let's say, or a 400 unit building in downtown Indy, you know, they may have different rental requirements for those buildings. And, but it, the thing is, it just has to be consistent. So you can't, yes. in that same building, you can't apply different criteria. I think the key is that it's objective and it's in writing. Right. It's, so right. There's, a paper, there's a paper trail. Right. Right. And then maybe more importantly is that it's enforced that way because it can be written and your staff not enforce it or you, you not enforce it. But it, it just permeates everything we do in terms of how we handle maintenance, how we handle late fees, how we evict people. It's got to be very consistent in in how we approach. So, but okay, well, certainly it's a thing to be on the lookout for. You know, it's something that we just—I don't know that we've seen a tremendous increase in it from where we sit, but I can certainly see uh, it does come around once in a while where discrimination is claimed. It's mostly just empty threats that hey, you know, I've been discriminated against. It's like no, not really, because your credit score was X. You know, that, that's a very objective measure or your income was X. Um, we mostly get it on the, the application side where people are denied. Um, it's not frequent, but it does happen occasionally. And it's as long I as we can, we can lean back to it and say, this is what it is. And this is what you were. It becomes, becomes very straightforward for us. I see it after the tenant has breached the lease some way. Okay. And they're mad. Yep. And they're mad that the landlord is actually enforcing the contract. Right. And that's when the discrimination pops up. Gotcha. Okay. Well, hey, Matt, thanks for joining me today. I really yep. appreciate My pleasure. Your, your knowledge. Um, if people want to reach out to you, if they don't have an attorney, need an attorney, how, how could someone reach out to you and start a conversation about engaging your services? I, I would encourage them to go to our law firm website. It's uh, indybizlaw.com, I-N-D-Y. B-I-Z-L-A-W, indiebizlaw.com. So on there, all my contact information is available. But then in addition to that, there's quite a few articles, eBooks, and um, videos about asset protection, estate planning, investing, landlord-tenant issues. There's there's a bunch of stuff on there. So it's it's a good resource um, for uh, business people and investors. So that's probably the best place to go, indiebizlaw.com. That's a good domain. I mean, that's a, that's a really good domain. You, get, you must have snapped that up early on. I, I, I did a long time ago. I told you I was old. <laughs> I'm so old. I got here before the internet. 
Right. That's right. <laughs> well, hey, Matt, this has been great. I hope everyone's picked up, uh, you know, some knowledge tidbit or two that'll help them in their investing. Uh, we'll be back next month with another podcast. In the meantime, we encourage you to share this podcast with your investing friends. Leave us a review and don't hesitate to reach out to us with any questions. Until next time, thanks so much for listening and please stay invested in your investment. <laughs>